0: Warning, there will be spoilers, so if you haven't seen the movie that we're discussing today, I suggest you stop the podcast and go watch it. Then when you come back and listen, you'll get more out of the discussion. On this episode, we discuss Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Sebastian and I am here with Jennifer. Hello. And Steve. Hi. Yay. Yes, we are here celebrating the release of the new Ghostbusters film and discussing the 2016 reboot of Ghostbusters. Uh, titled Ghostbusters, but later titled Ghostbusters Answer the Call. I don't know if we're going to consider that the official title, but that's the title they put on marketing materials after the fact. And the reason we are covering this movie is because it was something of a financial failure. In fact, it lost about $70 million, plus the reaction to it was kind of extreme in some ways, which we will get into, but it definitely merits discussion on our podcast. Jennifer, what is your history with the Ghostbusters franchise?
1: I was a big fan of the original uh, Ghostbusters from 1984. Uh, I saw that in the theater and loved it. And as I was mentioning earlier, I still have the 45 of the theme song, the Ray Parker Jr. <laughs> <jam>. <laughs>
0: Pretty great theme song. I think we can all agree on that.
1: Uh, yep. But yeah, that was, I mean, it was kind of one and done for me, though. I wasn't really um, interested in Ghostbusters 2 or was the cartoon or animated series or something that came out. Yeah. I don't know. I, I love the original film and that was just kind of enough for me i didn't really need to have a franchise but when this one came out i was interested to see it uh just from the cast alone i thought you know sure let's let's revisit it but as far as a, a franchise i just didn't feel like i needed needed more of of ghostbusters
2: i saw the movie um and then when it came out in the theater i also saw the sequel which i liked i enjoyed it and then i watched a bunch of the real Ghostbusters, uh, the cartoon based off of um, the characters in the movie. And um, I enjoyed that as well. And I'm not like a crazy, like, I collect all the toys kind of Ghostbusters fan. But I liked the original. So um, when the new one was coming out, I just wanted to see it. So I wanted to see it with a friend. I remember falling asleep during a part of it, which I'll talk about later. And then waking up for the, the finale, I'm just like, Wait, what? <laughs> so um, I, I got to see it again just now, and it was good to see it again. Yeah, my
0: history with the Ghostbuster franchise is a little similar to Jen's. I saw the original movie in the theater, like all of you guys, and I really enjoyed it. And I didn't really ever feel I needed any more Ghostbusters than that. And the sequel came out. I don't even think I saw the sequel in the theater, but I probably saw it on home video. And I was like, eh, that was fine. And I didn't watch the cartoon because I was too old for that. But that was pretty much it for Ghostbusters. And then the internet boomed and... I came to this bizarre realization that there was a whole world of people out there that were obsessed with Ghostbusters and really gave a shit about Ghostbusters and were like huge fans as if it was like Star Wars or something. And I've honestly really struggled with that because to me, Ghostbusters was a really fun one and done concept like, oh, we've got these comedy guys fighting ghosts in New York City. Like, cool. I don't need any more of that. And I didn't really feel like the sequel justified itself all that much. So, yeah, it's been a real kind of head scratcher for me to come to realize that there's a rabid group of people out there that just can't get enough of the Ghostbusters or the concept of Ghostbusters. So in a weird way, I'm kind of a hater because... I'm just kind of like I don't fucking get it like and like people get so upset about oh they're doing this with Ghostbusters or doing that with Ghostbusters and I'm just like "Uh, who fucking cares and so that takes us to the 2016 reboot this movie went through all sorts of production hell mainly because Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis really wanted to do a Ghostbusters 3 And Bill Murray was just shutting it down every time. He was like, nope, nope, nope. He didn't like the script. And this happened for like 20 years. And he just was not having it. He didn't want to do it. There's a lot of speculation as to maybe why. He said it was because of the scripts. And then later on, he was like, it's because I don't like Sony or whatever. And Sony owns the Ghostbusters franchise. But there's also sort of bad blood between him and Harold Ramis because of Groundhog Day. Uh, Something happened on Groundhog Day that sort of tainted their friendship. So there's some speculation that that was part of the reason is that he didn't really want to come back because he didn't want to work with Harold anymore, which is kind of sad because then Harold Ramis died in 2014. Apparently they sort of mended fences on his deathbed, but then it was like well we can't really do a full reunion of ghostbusters anyway so sony made the decision to reboot it which you know seemed like a reasonable decision to me if you got to make another ghostbusters i guess and so when they decided to do that <laughs> paul feig who was brought on board as director paul feig is known for you know comedies like uh, the Heat and he was uh, one of the producers on Freaks and Geeks. You know, he's he's been around sort of that Judd Apatow world and stuff. So he's reliable. Bridesmaids and um Spy. These are all fun movies, especially Bridesmaids. It's a great movie. So, yeah, he seems like a good choice. And then they made the announcement that they were going to be doing an all female Ghostbusters. And all hell broke loose on the internet. (laughs) All the angry man children couldn't stand (laughs) the idea of it being girls or whatever. I don't know. The Gamergate people. I don't really know much about this whole scene. I don't really understand why they would have cared. I didn't really think of Ghostbusters as being an exclusively male thing, but... I guess some people think that's how it should be, whatever it didn't make any difference to me that it was gonna be all females.
2: I think it was um partially that kind of thinking, but also um nostalgia is kind of like a crazy thing and and I'm a child of the eighties, so I'm just like, oh my God, what did you do to transformers and j you know all that stuff yeah. so i it's sort of like a you know, get off my lawn kind of you know older thing about like our the properties we loved, but um. It was too much, and it was sort of the direction it took was just poor. I get the nostalgia thing, but also, you know, I've learned to accept over the last, you know, recent years with all the remakes of things that uh, it's cool to have a new version, a new take on something, and it's not like someone took the old Ghostbusters and put it in a vault and be like, you can never see it again. We, We lost all the footage, you know, it's like... We, we still have that. So the, the new one's just like, it's like a present.
0: I, the thing I guess I don't understand is like, well, you can't really get the old guys back to do much more than cameos because they're old and they don't want to do it. So either you reboot and you just try to remake it with a new Peter Venkman and a new Egon or whatever, which people would also hate. Right. So in my mind, come up with four funny people and make them the new Ghostbusters. So that's kind of like how I saw it was like, well, this is probably the best we can hope for at the moment. But we'll talk about it as we get into the movie. I do think one of the big drawbacks to this movie is just that it really kind of doesn't give people what they really want, I think, in terms of the fans.
2: It really tries to use that formula of taking a bunch of SNL people and throwing them into this, you know, supernatural caper. It's a reboot, it's standalone, but it's really sort of like you kind of needed to see the first original Ghostbusters only because they're referencing stuff and it doesn't even explain it in a way that a standalone movie should Yeah, because it's relying on your knowledge And your nostalgia for the old film. It's just pure
0: callbacks without any context. All right, well, let's get into the movie. Ghostbusters 2016, a.k.a. Ghostbusters Answer the Call. Uh, We open with this scene. It's sort of uh, unrelated to the rest of the plot, necessarily, where Gabe from The Office is a tour guide in some creepy old historical house in New York City, Although the movie was mostly shot in Boston, not New York City. And as somebody who grew up in Boston, I can clearly recognize, like, that's Boston, not New York. That's
2: hilarious.
1: That house is an actual house. It's the Aldrich House. And it's in, it is in Boston. And yeah, they, they had to put like a backdrop of New York City behind it.
2: There's a scene later on in the movie where the ghosts take over the city and they're popping up everywhere. So they have a scene with um, Charles Dance in a bar and a ghost turns over and starts, you know yelling something about the yankees or the anyway and he's wearing a boston red Sox shirt he says yankees suck yeah yeah so it's like oh now that you say that it makes sense
1: well then he even says he says yankee sucks and then he's like where the hell am i like he's he's like, like what am
2: i doing in new york yeah <laughs> yeah
0: like all the the chinatown stuff that you see is boston's chinatown not New York's Chinatown very obviously I used to spend some time in Chinatown doing bad things so I recognize it for sure but anyway we get this opening scene with Gabe from the office and he's doing tours in this historical building and you know it's set up so that it looks like there's ghosts in there he's got little gadgets that knock like a candelabra over but you know it's all for show and then everybody leaves and then this entity sort of attacks him and chases him around the place and he does a good job i think being a gawky tour guide he's well cast for that he gets thrown around the room pretty good and at one point he like he runs down into the basement and it's covered in slime and stuff. And he's like, oh no. And then we cut to the titles or whatever. So we don't really see what happens to him until later. Similar to the original movie, it's giving us a scene where we're seeing a haunting before we actually meet our main characters.
2: I loved watching um, Silicon Valley. So seeing uh, the actor, uh, Zach Woods in this was great. And he was also in Spy in a pretty uh, small but funny role. So I, I really enjoyed this intro to the movie um, it reminded me a little bit of the uh, the library scene from the original Ghostbusters
1: I think it's a great opening I like that he's yeah he's doing this spooky tour and you know he's got this candle rigged to fall and like be this you know paranormal thing and then something real does happen and I also like when you mentioned he he a door opens and he runs down into the basement and that's where the ghost, had been locked up and so he goes down the stairs and then he is like so panicked he doesn't even realize he he's doing that and then all of a sudden he looks up and he was like oh you're so stupid you know it's <laughs> yeah. like because because you're thinking like in a horror movie you're like don't go downstairs like yeah are you don't you go into
0: the basement <laughs> it's not where you go
1: but he was just panicked and it, yeah it's a, it's a it's a cute fun opening i think
0: yeah so then after that we're sort of brought right into our main cast we start with who i would say is probably the main character between her and Melissa McCarthy, uh, Kristen Wiig, as Dr. Aaron Gilbert, and we're seeing her in her sort of life at Columbia University. Kristen Wiig's doing her Kristen Wiig routine, basically, where everything's awkward, and she says the wrong thing, and she's at this snooty party, and she's perfectly cast, I think, as this kind of character. It's totally a Kristen Wiig character. I mean, I do think that one of the drawbacks of this movie, and this extends to all of the cast, is they're all just kind of doing their thing that they do. And in that way, it definitely feels like a SNL movie. You know what I mean? It feels like, oh, we're just kind of doing skits here. And that starts to wear on me a little bit. It, not at the beginning. In the beginning, I'm sort of into it and I'm enjoying it. But it, but as the movie wears on, I'm kind of like, oh, I'm just kind of getting sick of everybody's shtick. But she's trying to get her tenure at Columbia but unfortunately, she's noticed that a book she wrote many years past called Ghosts from the Past, and it has this other long title, is now on Amazon. And it's this embarrassment to her because she did it with her old friend, Abby. And, you know, she's trying to be a serious college professor now. And of course, we get the great Charles Dance as the dean of the college, and you know he is the last person in the world that you want to look like an idiot in front of. So he's well cast there.
1: I love Kristen Wiig, and I actually love all of the actors in this. So I'm I'm gonna probably gush a little about their performances because I think they're super fun. I also do fully hear you as far as feeling like an SNL skit that goes on too long, or or kind of the problem that happens with a lot of. SNL um, skits that get turned into movies, yeah. Where it's just it can't sustain. So I, I totally hear what you're saying regarding that. I just I adore I really adore Kristen Wiig, and so yeah, her doing her thing is is a good time for me. Um, I believe the professor that she is the, the fellow professor she's talking with, um, who she keeps saying the wrong things to, isn't that Elizabeth Perkins?
2: It's Elizabeth Perkins. Yes. Well, I didn't get. It. I mean, I like Elizabeth Perkins a lot. Um, from He Said She Said and big but i was like oh that's i mean there's lots of cameos i guess you could call them cameos in this movie but that being the first one's kind of cool but why did she want to do it i don't
1: know but yeah she she keeps stumbling all over herself doing the Kristen wig um i can't say the right thing and she's got like her other fellow professor who is kind of her boyfriend
0: never made clear
1: never really made clear but i think kind of supposed to be or or at least she's interested in some way but he's so like several times like she goes to like kiss him goodbye on the cheek and she ends up like pecking his like lapel on his suit and it's just it's just a lot of awkwardness but um yeah the way that they find out that her book is is in circulation is um, we get also another Ed Beagley Jr. shows up because she's getting ready to lecture in the big hall, so she's super jazzed about that, and she's like getting getting all I'm lecturing in the big hall and all doing a little dance around and shaking her butt, and of course Ed Beagley Jr. is right there, and and anyway he's asking about you know he needs help he's with the Aldrich House there's been a, an occurrence there and. You know, he busts out her book and she's like, where did you get this, you know, and and she's denying it's her, her and all this stuff. And um, I think it's also great because then when she does end up going later to the Aldrich house and there's another gag there. She's saying, you know, that she and, and they give Ed Bigley Jr. like another it's like something something junior, like another name. <laughs> yeah. And so when he goes there and she's like, no, he just showed up, you know, and says his name like Tom Smith or whatever. I can't remember what it is. And they're like, Tom Smith died 15 years ago. And it's just like, oh, it was. it's funny. And then we find out, no, it was the junior that came. So yeah. good use of Ed Bigley Jr. I think he's a delight. So that that was fun.
2: Yeah, that gag was so good.
1: Yeah, so good.
2: The boyfriend's sort of like gaslighting her in a way. It's like yeah, just definitely trying to keep her unsure yeah. of herself. It's He's kind of a dick. I mean... For sure, yeah. A lot of the guys say kind of dickish things in the movie. Yeah, I like that it starts out in academia. Kristen Wiig, if you look at it, and Melissa McCarthy's character, Abby... It's sort of like Dan Aykroyd and Kate McKinnon's obviously Egon, yeah. and then you got like Lily Jones, who's you know Ernie Hudson. But like if that you throw Kristen Wiig into that, she's like she should be Bill Murray, right? She should be like kind of cool and sarcastic, but she doesn't play that at all, and that's cool. I think that she's doing her own thing, whereas I think the other characters are like to their counterparts in the original movie.
0: Yeah, I just see her as kind of being the polar opposite of him. And then that way she's sort of related to him. You know what I mean?
1: Steve, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like, if that would make more sense. But I cannot see Kristen Wiig being able to play it cool. Right. Like, she's so not cool. I mean, she is cool. She's great. But she's like, her characters are, are never cool
2: well cheetah let's talk about the change in wonder woman 84 then <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah 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 sorry i forgot about no,
2: but she starts out as awkward in that as well yeah
1: but that's she goes from awkward to kind of cool to evil right isn't that what happens like things yeah. go bad as cheetah yeah i guess she can play i guess she can play it cool
0: i'll say this i kristen wig gets the best joke for me in the movie and that is you know after she's gone back to melissa mccarthy and they've gone to investigate investigate the whatever house, Aldridge. the Aldridge house, and they find a ghost and she gets slimed. They come running out of the house or whatever, and they're, <laughs> they're filming it, and she's all covered in slime, and she's like, oh, <laughs> oh, so real, or whatever, and then you cut to
1: Charles Dance is like watching it on YouTube. That's the best. I laugh so hard, because it's just, it's such like a great freeze frame, because she's so elated because her and melissa mccarthy have been at this for so long like since they were teenagers and you know we get the backstory later about how kristen wig had been haunted by her mean neighbor like for her like entire teenage years and nobody believed her so to finally like quantify that that there was you know this ghost and the, the energy and they got ectoplasm or whatever slime and She's just so like, yeah, she's like, ghosts are real, ghosts (laughs) are (laughs) real. She's like and just covered in this goo and it zoomed in on her face and the cut to Charles Dance is looking at her and like she's getting canned is this chef's kiss. It's great.
2: Best
0: moment in the movie for
2: me. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting about the the book that they wrote, Ghosts of the Past, because I went through the process of publishing someone's book on the Kindle publishing platform. And it's so easy if you have like cover art and a PDF to just have a hardcover ebook or, you know, a soft color book printed. And I can totally see someone like that co-authored something with someone be like, yeah, I published it. You know, what are you going to do about it kind of thing? Um, so it's like, wow, not cool. Well, why don't we talk about her co-writer on the book? And that is Dr. Abby Yates
0: as played by Melissa McCarthy. Melissa McCarthy is an actress that I'm pretty fond of. Uh, love her in Gilmore Girls. Loved her mm-hmm. in The Heat. She and Abby were childhood friends, as Jen was saying, and they were trying to prove the existence of ghosts even back in high school. Aaron has gone a more serious route, while Abby is still kind of holding on to this idea of discovering ghosts. And so Aaron abandoned Abby and Abby thinks that Aaron's got a stick up her butt now and all that kind of stuff. It's a pretty typical oppositional sort of setup for characters in a comedy, but it works and it ends up paying off, I think, pretty well in the end. Like, And you do kind of feel like these two could be friends in real life and stuff. So that part of it works for me. One thing that I really enjoy about Melissa McCarthy in this movie is that she's kind of got more of the physical comedy moments. Later on, they're testing out proton packs in an alleyway, and Melissa McCarthy's, like, shooting the proton pack, and it's, like, making her fly up into the air. And she gets to do a really cool possession scene late in the movie <laughs> where she's inhabited by a evil spirit or whatever, and she's doing some great physical comedy there, like, moving her head really fast, and it's good. Good good moments of physical comedy. There's this running gag that she can't get enough wontons in her <laughs> Asian soup. And the delivery guy is the guy from Deadpool who is like the cabbie or whatever. He's pretty funny. But yeah, that's kind of the whole thing with her character is the physical comedy of the movie. She's kind of the heart of the movie and the wonton gag.
1: I love her. I'm such a fan. I love her in um, Bridesmaids also. She's just so great. Yeah, I think I think she is the heart of this film for sure. Yeah, she's just she's just a good time. I like I said you're, you're you know, I'm not going to bag on the cast at all cuz I I think one thing the movie outright was the casting.
2: I really loved Spy. That movie is I think is hilarious. And surprisingly like when I saw it, I was like this movie doesn't deserve to be this good. <laughs> you know, I mostly remember her from that. I never did see her in Gilmore Girls. That's fascinating. I never saw The Heat I'm sure I've seen other movies with her in it, but I just keep on going back to um, Spy. And yeah, she's great. She's like the only non-SNL person in the movie. But yeah, like the the casting for this is for the most part great. Only because I'm like, why is Chris Hemsworth in this other than being Chris Hemsworth and he's awesome, but I don't get why he's in the movie he's beefcake yes yes
0: this was sort of the beginning of chris hemsworth as a comedian like this was kind of kicked off his comedy career which he's he's sort of continued on in some ways they even made thor more funny because they realized like oh chris hemsworth can be hot and funny
1: i think he yeah i think he has really good comedic timing and i I was reading a bit of trivia about this film and he was, you know, concerned about holding his own with these other actors who are pretty well versed in improv. And um, he was able to throw in some improv of his own. Like he has like a whole little rant about his cat that's actually a dog, but he's named...
2: My cat. My,
1: like my cat, yeah. So like that whole thing he, he did was improv. So I think you told me this term... Sebastian, um, didn't you call him a himbo? Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So um, anyway, I don't know. He's I I just I really enjoy him. I, I, I get it. It's kind of it's kind of weird maybe for this film. I don't know if I would have thought of Chris Hemsworth when I was thinking of a Ghostbusters reboot as far as being. The um, Annie Potts character, right? That's who he's supposed to be. I
0: think it's kind of a clever twist on that, you know, and it's kind of putting a dig at men, which this movie does a little bit. It likes to take digs at dudes. And so like, ah, he's the eye candy hot guy and he's really super dumb. You know, it's funny. And I like that Kristen Wiig is totally smitten with him and tries to sort of flirt with him, but he's just so completely clueless. I'm glad you brought up the whole improv thing because I got to say I'm not really a fan of the modern way comedies are made, which are, hey, let's get these funny people together on set and then just have them riff and we'll take the best jokes and just put them in the movie. I'm a writer. I like things to be well written (laughs) and I can always tell when people are just riffing and it's not really – pertinent to the script and you know a lot of times this movie falls into that we also watched the extended version which was about 10 minutes longer and that had even more like riffing
2: and and improv jokes in it and I gotta say not a fan yeah I I watched the extended as well thinking that you guys also watched the extended but I don't even know what was added Because I don't remember seeing it the first time in the theater.
0: I don't know either, but I could tell that things were going on too long. Like scenes were going on too long and more jokes were being made that didn't need to be made. Those little moments where I could tell it was improv, I could tell there was more improv in it. And I was just like, I don't want more improv.
1: I 100% agree. I actually was thinking earlier when when you were talking about when you saw this in the theater, Steve, because Sebastian and I saw it in the theater as well, I'm pretty sure I know when you dozed off.
2: You'd be shocked when we get there. I think you're going to be (laughs) surprised.
1: Well, because it happens. I mean, I didn't doze off, I don't think, in the theater. And I I certainly didn't when we watched this last night. But I kind of start to check out at a certain point. And um, my biggest problem with a lot of these films is that they just don't know when to end it. it. This extended version with more improv and bullshit was just way too long
0: somebody who's doing a lot of improv but is probably not wearing out her welcome too much is Kate McKinnon as Holtzman now this character I think kind of walks away with the movie in some ways like she's definitely the character that I think a lot of people were like oh Kate McKinnon is just the best in this movie her character is clearly based on the design for Egon that was in the cartoon. In the cartoon, oh, yeah. Egon had blonde hair. And, you know, she's doing her Kate McKinnon. I'm kind of off-putting in weird, but in a funny way kind of thing that she does. You know, she's the person who's designing all the gear and all the technology. So she's kind of the mad scientist of the group. She's kind of a real scene stealer, I would say. Although I know, like, a lot of people are super... Kate McKinnon fans she kind of weirds me out a little bit I don't know what it is about her I know that's kind of her thing like she's sort of supposed to be making you feel uncomfortable so it's one of those weird things where it's like well it's working I'm uncomfortable like if I was in the same room with her I'd be like I don't know what this person is about (laughs) like what is their deal I do like her and I do recognize that this character is kind of the standout character of the movie, but at the same time, she makes me feel weird.
1: I I love her. I love that she's a a big old weirdo and it's great. And I love this character. And this character is kind of my favorite of the film. Like the most laughs are from her just being weird and great. And I appreciate also just talking about her and her character is like, you know, we get, she's the constant kind of comic relief doing odd things and like eating Pringles. While they are like getting ready to try to capture a ghost in this in the subway, like on the tracks, which, by the way, like makes me so uncomfortable watching this, even though I know everybody's going to be okay. I'm like, did you just get off the cracks? Like, this is this is not not good. Yeah. So we get you know, we get kind of her doing her thing like is everyone's kind of doing their thing, their stick or whatever throughout the film. But at the end, we get like this real heartfelt toast from her. And, you know, and then people were like, wow, we didn't expect that to go that direction. You know, even like somebody comments on that at the table. Like she, you know, she she goes there and is just like really warm and endearing. And I kind of adore her.
0: I definitely like the way her character sort of just tosses off like, oh, if this happens, we're all going to die. Like, oh, we're we'll yeah. all, be, we'll <laughs> all be, the skin will be sloughed off our bodies or whatever. Like some horrible thing is going to happen. She's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just don't. Just don't
2: do it wrong or else we'll we'll definitely die. Yeah, She's doing what Egon was doing in the original. He's the smartest person in the room. She made all the equipment that they're using, but she's, like, socially awkward and, you know, and says, you know, the weird, creepy stuff all the time. But, like, yeah, at the end, it's great. It's, like, her found family. I got
1: a little choked up with that. I'm not going to lie. Like, I got a little, like, oh feels. Right.
2: But I'm, like, the Pringles thing, like, like, once you pop, like, that line's great, but I'm also, like... <laughs> Is this like product placement or did she just take something from uh, catering and was just like, yeah, I got chips on me kind of thing?
0: All right. I have to call some bullshit right now on some product placement in this movie. There's a scene where they're all sitting around eating fucking Papa John's pizza. That's right. And they're supposed to be in New York. No one in New York would be fucking eating Papa John's pizza. like, And it, you clearly see all the Papa John's boxes. Like It's clearly a product placement thing. Oh, wow. You didn't notice that? Like you're a New Yorker. You weren't offended by no, that? No, because I I I didn't
2: I didn't notice it. Oh, it's so obvious. I was more noticing how um horrible the Chinese food looked like in the containers.
1: I think there was also um Coke placement, Coca-Cola yes. was another one that was in there heavily. And then the other one, w- which like we saw like three skyline shots of the freaking H&M building. I was like, I don't need to keep seeing H- H&M. Wow. I...
2: I'm not sure why that blew over in my head. You probably were ordering a Papa John's pizza after the movie and you didn't know why. While
1: you were uh, shopping for some clothes at H&M and like chugging a Coca-Cola.
2: I mean, I did have a Coke tonight and I do shop at H&M, but I would never order Papa John's. Thank you very much. I
1: draw the line at Papa John's.
0: So, the fourth Ghostbuster is Leslie Jones, and she is playing Patty Tolman. I like the way her character fits in because she works at the MTA, but she's really passionate about New York City, and she knows everything all the history and stuff. And You know, there's a tagger who frequents her stop that she has sort of this oppositional relationship with. But then later on, she's down there with the rest of the Ghostbusters. They're asking him if he's seen a ghost. And he's like, oh, yeah, I seen a ghost. It looks like this or whatever. (laughs) And he's painting something on the wall. You don't see it. And then they cut to show you what the painting is. And it's the, the Ghostbusters logo. Kind of a clever
2: usage of a New York City tagger. That graffiti scene with the logo that they end up actually using it's great fun as a visual gag only because when they interview um kevin he's saying like oh yeah he's a web designer and so like he shows all these logos he made and they're like they're absolutely horrible one's like the Seven <laughs> Eleven logo and then one's like this like crazy, far-f- like it's a hot dog above a house is like, oh, yeah, it's, it sort of implies that there's a ghost holding the hot dog.
1: And the ghost with the giant boobs.
2: Yeah, yeah. the, the And then Kay McKinnon says like, yeah, they used to call me that in high school, ghost hits, which I thought was
1: hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I love Leslie Jones, too. And I, I think that um the way that her character is scripted is, is perfect addition to the team. Like she knows New York City inside and out. Like she should be working as some sort of tour guide or something or, right. you know, cause she knows all these spots. So she brings that to the table for sure. And she also brings them wheels because they didn't have a car and they're having to schlep all this stuff around. And so she has an uncle who has um, a mortuary business. So she's borrowing his hearse so they can cruise around with all their gear.
0: And who do we find out that her uncle
1: is? Well, not until the very end, but yeah, we find out that her uncle is Ernie Hudson.
0: I remember there was some hay made when this came out that it was, you know, maybe a little bit uncool to black people that the one black woman wasn't a scientist and everybody else is a scientist and you know she's the only one who's like a blue collar worker i can see the point i guess but i feel like the way she's integrated into the story is actually pretty good
2: at one point when melissa um when abby has already like put out the flyers and then and then aaron looks at and says like yeah if you see something say something and then it's the number and she's like what (laughs) like no one's gonna know what that is and then Did I miss a part where they changed the flyer? Because then Kevin comes in for the interview and then, you know, Patty's there, Leslie Leslie Jones, to join the team or to be interviewed. But how did she know how to find them at that point? I was like, did I miss something? No, I think it was just because
0: she saw the YouTube video or something.
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. Something like that. But also when she sees that the purple light emitting uh, ghosts leyline amplifier in the subway, you know I'm trying to be like too realistic with the comic logic here but it's like call the cops like immediately like is it a bomb like kind of thing or or like you said when you were freaking out because they were on the tracks and Leslie Jones saying like we only have a couple minutes because the the train's coming and like living here like <laughs> the longest you're gonna wait for a train especially at the time of day they were probably going, might have been nine to 15 minutes tops. And I would not even risk going on there with all the heavy equipment they're bringing. That's when you call MTBA and be like, shut the line down. There's people on the tracks kind of thing. But whatever, I'll I'll let it go. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, speaking of the device that they find in the subway, that brings us to our villain, and that is Rowan North, as played by Neil Casey. On Wikipedia, he is described as Dr. Rowan North, so we are to presume that this guy is a professor or a scientist or something like the Ghostbusters. But he's really not presented that way in the movie, so it's a little confusing. In the movie, he's like a bellhop at the Mercado Hotel in New York. I guess he's just doing that as some sort of cover so he can lay down his device in the basement or whatever. I'm not super into it. I don't think he's a great villain. He's a fine actor. He's doing a fine performance. They're definitely trying to go for disgruntled internet poster as the villain or like incel type as the villain. It's definitely sort of aiming there, which is fine, especially considering all the crap this movie got for just having women in the lead. I think that's a perfectly good target. but. Just in terms of his character, I don't ever really fully grasp his character.
1: Neither do I. And yes, I think he's taken the Bellman gig just because that's where all the ley lines intersect and that's where he needed to do all of his stuff, which, by the way, how he ever would have gotten away with doing that in the hotel's basement I don't know how that was all possible, but you know, whatever, we'll suspend belief for that. You
2: didn't buy that as a former concierge? He's the bellhop, but he's also like the head janitor. So I'm sure he could, like, he's locked in a room in the basement. And no one else goes to check it, I guess.
1: I guess.
0: It's also a little silly because it's like nobody gives him any respect even in this job and people are insulting to him even though he's just a normal guy apparently working a job. I get it. He's put upon. He's angry at the world. But in real life, like once you're out of high school... People don't, like, tease you at your job, <laughs> generally speaking. You may be incompetent and they don't like you, but they wouldn't be giving you a hard time and be like, oh, you nerd, or whatever they
1: yeah. say. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit much. But yeah, he's, I mean, I think he does a fine job. It's just not, it's not the most exciting part of the film for me, is his whole thing and his whole, you know, motivation as of, like, wanting to, he had like a, a thing that he was calling it, like the fourth the fourth
0: dimension or something
1: dim- or something. I don't know, some sort of cl- cleansing that he's supposed to do or something like that, like his whole like manifesto type thing.
2: He wants to break the barrier, which is the barrier that separates us from the spiritual world and And even when Abby and Aaron like recreate their high school presentation of their science there. <laughs> They talk about protecting the barrier right. as one of the parts of the song. It's interesting. And, and he looks, you know, no offense to Neil Casey, but he looks like super creepy. He, he plays really well, you know. And, yeah, there's a, a part in the movie where they're looking at the comments to, I guess, the YouTube video. And it's I think it's like a direct quote from something someone said online or something. It's like, ain't no bitches going to be busting their ghosts or something like that. Um, right, yeah, yeah. And it's like they're... <laughs> They're totally calling out the the haters and stuff.
1: But his motivation is solely, he wants to break the barrier because he wants to cleanse this world of all the people that are the haters that are giving him a hard time.
2: Yeah, no, he's um, obviously been bullied his entire life.
1: But that's his whole thing is like he wants, yeah, he wants to just set everything loose and, okay.
0: The moment I enjoyed his performance... The most was when he goes to the Ozzy Osbourne concert. There's an Ozzy Osbourne concert taking place in some theater downtown New York. And he's sort of going in there because he needs to put one of these bombs or whatever you want to call them in this venue. He's walking through. Through the crowd and it's all metal heads and he's like rock on fellow metal heads <laughs> i'm really excited about this ozzy osbourne concert
1: ozzy's the headliner but it's some like one of those like and metal fests or something like that he's got a state of euphoria anthrax shirt on this whole scene is really funny but also really terrible as someone who likes metal and i know you were offended sebastian
0: oh okay yes so this Concert scene is kind of like the point where the movie kind of loses me, I got to say, and there's a few reasons why. First of all, the band that's on stage is terrible. I forget their name and I don't even care to say it because they're so bad. I guess they're a real band. I don't fucking care. They're terrible. No self-respecting metal concert would have this band playing. I'm sorry. They're not even metal. They're like punk or something. That's
1: not punk. I don't know what that is. It wasn't punk.
0: It's not metal. It's not the right music for this scene. They needed to have somebody like Venom or Slayer or something. It needed to be something... Way more demonic because then what happens is a ghost appears, which isn't a ghost as far as I can tell it's like a demon is it supposed to be the ghost of a demon like I don't know (laughs) it makes no sense I mean I get it it's a metal show so they want to have something that looks like you'd see it at a metal show while the band's playing there's this green demon with wings flying around and the band's like thinks it's part of the light show and the light guy's like I didn't do that or whatever fine 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 but like they're not demon hunters, they're ghostbusters, and that's not a fucking ghost. It's a demon. And then this thing, which they capture, ends up killing Bill Murray later or something. I feel like this breaks the movie, kind of, because it's not a friggin' ghost. It's a demon.
1: I know the sticks in your craw. You've got a real problem <laughs> with ghosts and demons, because I've dragged you to plenty of paranormal films where it's supposed to be a ghost, and it turns out to be a demon, and you are pissed. There's a difference. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> it's fine if they want to say like, oh, it's a demon. We caught a demon and go in that direction and be like, oh, shit, we got demons, too. That's fine. But they keep calling it a ghost. It's not a ghost. It's like a no. devil with
1: wings. Uh, and... oh, or, yeah, you kind of like a gargoyle or something. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's not a, any sort of human form.
0: Even Slimer, who we're going to see later, is sort of humanoid. He's still got like a face that looks like a person and stuff i mean i get it they're playing loosey-goosey with things and it's just cartoonish and who cares but it just kind of sticks in my craw
2: in the movie that begins out with the the ghost of the the aldrich house which is like the daughter that was locked in the basement and the effects for the ghost and i i remember this when i first saw it the first time the ghosts are so crisp and perfect they almost don't feel a part of the scene yes but the first one is beautiful and in fact uh arian goes oh my god she's so beautiful kind of thing yeah um and then yeah the ghost in the subway is the electric chair victim which doesn't make any sense for that to have take place there because in Ghostbusters 2 the electric chair ghosts are in the courthouse terrorizing the judge who put them away and gave them the death penalty and then at the rock concert you know, you look at the design for Slimer and it's like, oh, it's a uh, someone that died because they ate so much or something like that. You can imagine that. And maybe this winged demon is someone that was like a a satanist or, or some kind of demon worshipper kind of person and and when they died, they manifested as a demon. I'm just saying. You get the award for the podcast for helping out the movie the most. I didn't
0: mean to. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. It's Everybody's got to do it. We all do it. You've come up with a good backstory for something that doesn't make any sense. Oh, by the way, Leslie Jones does have a line yeah. in the subway about... The reason why that uh, the electrocuted ghost is there is because there used to be a prison there
1: above there. Yeah.
0: Oh, okay.
2: I I completely missed that. It's easy enough to miss.
1: Something positive from this horrible metal show that I can't think of anything positive to say except for this. I do really enjoy that the the ghost gets into the mannequins. Oh yeah yeah. Chasing yeah. after. I I love an animated mannequin. That's like one of my favorite creepy fun things since I saw. A Twilight Zone episode when I was young, like. You have that with the mannequins coming alive, and yes. anyway, chasing Leslie Jones, and um, that's like the best thing that happens there, in my opinion. Everything else, it's it, it, I'm I'm with you, Sebastian. This is where it kind of starts to nosedive for me too.
0: Leslie Jones gets a great line when she looks in the room full of mannequins and is like, "Oh, it's a room full of nightmares, or
1: whatever." <laughs> yeah, 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 she's like, "Oh no, no, not going in there," and I'm like, "That's exactly right, Leslie Jones. You keep it moving. Don't go in there." That's
2: great. As someone that actually has a bunch of mannequins and in- place yeah super creepy i think the 2005 uh doctor who like the that had the the mannequins and yeah it's it's really effective yeah give me more of like that kind of scariness i don't even know if it even belongs in a horror comedy i mean this is not even a horror comedy it's just a straight up comedy i think it's totally
0: good i think it works and like i think the cg ghosts they look good but th- like you said, they're so crisp and so perfect that it doesn't have the same effect, obviously, as the original, which, you know, were done with much more primitive special effects, but they kind of looked more supernatural because they were kind of hazy and, you know, because they were being sort of superimposed on the scene or whatever it was more effective in this they're just so crisp and perfect all the time that it's just it just becomes kind of like cg candy and it's well done cg candy but by the end when you've got a million of these ghosts running around it just kind of becomes pretty visual noise and it's just not terribly effective or impactful
2: something that i do think is effective uh effects wise is um in the screen, when they, in the theater, and they and they have it on the Blu-ray that I saw as well, it's letterboxed, but they're breaking the black bars. They're making it more. I guess it's actually sixteen by nine, but they're actually pushing it out toward the like the HD um 1080, 920 ratio. Yeah, uh, when they shoot like ghosts do it, and the the plasma uh, beams do it as well. And it's very cool. Yeah, they go outside the frame. Yeah, yeah I, I love it. It's
0: cool. It was a cool. Effect. It was
2: very cool. And for I didn't see the movie in three D, but when when I first saw them break that wall, I was like. That's awesome. I totally loved it. Let's talk about the
0: cameos that are from the original Ghostbuster cast. Pretty much everyone who's still alive, other than Rick Moranis, shows up in this movie. I was bummed that Rick Moranis didn't show up in the movie, but apparently they... Offered him a cameo and he didn't want to do it. So that's on Rick Moranis. The major one we get is Bill Murray. He plays this like psychic debunker, Dr. Martin Heiss. He is dressed like he's just walked off the latest Wes Anderson joint or something. (laughs) He's got like a (laughs) floppy hat and stuff and he doesn't believe in ghosts and so after this heavy metal concert he shows up at the Ghostbusters lair which is uh, above a Chinese restaurant and they've got sort of Chinese decor. They've got the ghost in one of those containers and this is the demon ghost which isn't really a ghost but a demon but whatever I'll get over it Will you? (laughs) It's in one of these canisters and Abby's like no we're not going to open up the canister and show him but we know we have a ghost but of course Aaron's ego gets the better of her and she he steps on the little foot pedal that opens up the canister and the ghost comes flying out and grabs bill murray and th- smashes th- through the window with him and then that's the last we see of bill murray apparently he's dead i don't know i don't know what happened to him they don't explain <laughs> it in the movie but it seems pretty bad
2: well he fell the one story down onto the street and and died but then the cops come up and it's like you know, you hear the story like a demon like threw him out the window and you're like, you guys are all under arrest. I'm sorry. You're like you pushed a guy, an old man out the window yeah. like you're going to jail. But apparently they got away with it somehow.
1: But they get away with it because this is when um, like the special agents start to come into the picture. Oh, right,
2: right? Which is um, brings back Michael K. Williams and uh, that's right Matt Walsh as the sort of like X-Files guys. Under Underused,
0: yes, way underused. Yeah, especially since we just lost Michael K. Williams a few months ago. Yeah. I'm just like, uh, whenever he shows up and stuff and he's not given a lot to do, I'm just like, uh, give me more Michael K. Williams. Yeah, like, why couldn't he be a Ghostbuster? Right,
1: he's yeah, so missed.
0: But anyway, you know, this Bill Murray cameo, it's cute or whatever, but I can't imagine anybody who wanted to see Bill Murray in a Ghostbusters movie is satisfied by this. Like, everybody had to have been kind of pissed that this is all you're going to get of Bill Murray, right? And that he's right. not even playing Venkman.
2: Yeah, he's not He's not Peter Venkman.
0: Yeah, that seems almost like insult to injury. Like, we're going to put Bill Murray and the rest of the Ghostbusters in the movie, but they're not going to be the characters you want to see. Ha ha. Yeah. Why did they think that was going to make anybody happy? That's going to
1: make nobody happy it wasn't a good choice I, I mean i like the first ghostbusters but i'm not a super fan and i'm not like feeling some kind of way about how things should happen but i can totally understand and i would have been pissed if i didn't get get the character that i wanted but he's there and they do that you know two more times yeah
0: we get dan Aykroyd as a cabbie erin wants to get a cab and she can't get a cab or is it erin that's trying to get the cab and yes he's- Pulls up, yeah, and he's like, "I'm not gonna go downtown or whatever." And he's like, "I ain't afraid of no ghosts." And yeah. drives off. So that's all we get of Dan Aykroyd. Can't imagine anybody was that satisfied with that cameo either. Right. Then, as we mentioned, we had get Ernie Hudson as Patty's uncle, <laughs> the funeral parlor owner.
1: And then we get um at the beginning of the film when Aaron's leaving the snooty uh, academic gathering. There's a bust of Harold Ramis in the hallway, right? Yes, which was sweet.
2: I do like how um, Dan Aykroyd is like, you know, I, I don't go down to Chinatown because having tried to park or had friends or with my parents have gone when I was little, go to Chinatown and try to find parking. It is a nightmare. You would not want to be driving around in in New York Chinatown. <laughs>
0: I think probably the one who fares the best, honestly, is Annie Potts, because she just plays like a hotel receptionist that they run into. And she's kind of basically doing the same character that she did in Ghostbusters, but it's not technically her. Mm -hmm. She's just a hotel receptionist. And she gets like a funny line. So it's, you know, nice to see her. But again, like, who's going to be satisfied with this? The most awkward one, though, has got to be... Poor Sigourney Weaver. We get Sigourney Weaver at the very end of the movie, the very, very, very end, after we've gotten, like, 17 cut scenes or whatever. <laughs> There's one more at the end where we meet Holtzman's mentor, and it's Sigourney Weaver, and she sort of looks like Holtzman. Holtzman has clearly, like, modeled herself after her, and it's just not really that funny, and it just sort of is painful. I mean whatever i love sigourney weaver she's one of my favorite actors of all time but you know it's just sort of a goofy not that funny scene and easy to miss because you could have easily not even stayed to watch it so i
2: guess it's pretty harmless overall yeah no i mean um i love seeing sigourney weaver and stuff even at the end of um Cabin in the woods. I thought that was great. No, that's
0: great. Yeah, that's what I like. Sometimes you can throw Sigourney Weaver at the end of your movie, and it's going to be great, like that. But in this case, I feel like they were going for that cabins in the wood magic again, and it's like no, right, right, not happening this time. Nope. Sorry, guys. It just felt like an improv scene that wasn't working. It was like, yeah, "Yeah, we're going to improv. Come on, Sigourney, come on over here. Uh, Get next to Kate McKinnon and just kind of riff. And that's not what Sigourney Weaver does. She's like a real actor. She's not a riffer.
1: Is there anything more uncomfortable than an improv scene that doesn't work? Because having gone to see improv many times in LA to support friends or whatever, like when it's great, it's great. When it's not, you're just like, oh. Oh
2: God, I I know that feeling. Cringe sandwich. You know, no offense to my friends who have been in improv who I've enjoyed, but like sometimes like someone just does not say yes to what people are going with and you're just like, oh my God. It's
1: a skill. Like, I mean, not everybody can do it. Like you said, it's like Sigourney Weaver's a great actor but that doesn't mean that she can improv like the r- the rest of these people are like professional improv, like folks, yeah. you know, that are with the cast and there's such an art to it. And I didn't mean any sort of offense either. I'm just saying when it works, it's awesome. When it's not working, you just like want to melt into the seat.
0: So the last sort of major element in the story is we get, uh, the mayor of New York as played by Andy Garcia. The Ghostbusters are making a name from them- themselves and, you know, making a scene around town in the original movie, I think the mayor just doesn't acknowledge them or d- denies that anything's going on. The twist here is that the mayor and his assistant, Lynch, played by Cicely Strong, they're both like, oh no, we know they're ghosts. We know that you guys are are actually doing what you say you're doing but we can't acknowledge it publicly so we're gonna totally shame you publicly but behind closed doors like good job good job there's not too much done with them however there is a pretty funny scene near the end where aaron goes to a restaurant where he's eating and tries to warn him that you know That the villain is setting up these ley lines and all these ghosts are going to come out and she's like you're ignoring this just like the jaws mayor and he's like don't you dare compare me to the jaws mayor that's great
1: such a good line that was so great
0: second best joke in the movie for me yeah so even though andy garcia doesn't get a lot to do here he does get one of the best lines in the movie
1: He does and I totally appreciate that they acknowledge that ghosts are real and that what they're doing is helping but the public can't know about it. Like I I, I think that that's a great twist on things it's like yeah we know this is going on and we thank you for your service but yeah we're gonna go on TV and say that you're frauds and (laughs) you know just like the, the, the just society can't handle this. And they're like talk about other things that like off the cuff that have happened like a, a town in like Montana that disappeared or, you know, like all these different other events that have happened yeah. that they've had to like, you know, cover up. It's fun.
2: There's a scene or even in the beginning um, when Jillian, H- when Holtzman is sh- showing off the, the gadgets he's made, like the, I can't believe I'm forgetting the, the proton gun or what, what's the proton pack. Yes. Yeah. Something. So anyway, but then, um, and the ghost trap, the new ghost trap is, is very cool with the the attached um, foot pedal that that shoots off once you throw it, so they can step on it. And then she's created a whole new slew of ghost weapons that they test out in the behind the Chinese restaurant, which are like a ghost grenade and um, another type of pistol. Which she tells um Aaron that like oh you're not ready for that, but like when you are, it's yours kind of thing. And then um a fist gauntlet. They created this, uh, or Sony, I guess, created this separate company called the Ghost Corps or whatever for these new Ghostbusters movies. And and you you can really see them here like, yeah, it's a franchise now. We're trying to create all this new merchandising for the kids and stuff. I'm all for that. Like, I don't mind merchandising and toyetic
0: stuff I mean obviously I don't mind because I've got action figures all over the house and whatnot but (laughs) if it's incorporated well into the story I'm totally down for it and I feel like they do a good job here like yeah cool ghost fists and grenades and all that that all works for me and I like that Holtzman gets to be the character that sort of delivers that it's fun and like later on in the climax she's got those like Two guns that are attached to the proton pack, and she's
2: like blowing into the nozzle and stuff. That weapon's amazing. How they just pop out of the backsides and like the on the cords. They're actually destroying the ghosts. They're blasting them into pieces as opposed to yeah capturing them. And I'm just like wondering what the metaphysical like morality is on that <laughs> morality or what what's that what does that even mean? Like, are you sending them beyond? Are you like I don't even know what that is. They're dead already, but then it's like
1: even worse. Yeah, that, but also it seems like there's, I mean, this is like Ghostbusters on steroids as far as like how many are let loose. It's, I mean, it seems from my memory, and I haven't seen the original in a number of years, but it seems to be a lot more going on, right? Like, so I don't know how they could capture all of them with these things.
0: Logistically, it wouldn't make any sense. It would, <laughs> and it would take forever.
2: The spirits that are released um, in the first one, it's on comparable to this movie, I believe. And even in Ghostbusters 2, it's like the Titanic comes in. Or is that the first one? No, I think that's the first one. Anyway... There's a lot of ghosts around in all the movies.
0: But they're not blasting them into oblivion. They're just kind of like flying around and then they all go away or something. They all get sucked into the vortex or whatever it is.
1: I think it's important to mention, too, because this is going to come up in the climax. uh, Another callback to the original. Um, I think it's when they were at the metal show. Holdsman tells, I think she tells Aaron just to me, or maybe it's Leslie Jones, I can't remember who, it, but she tells one of the other girls, like, everything will be fine, but just make sure not to cross the streams, because that's yes. a, a big thing, so. Yeah,
2: Holtzman tells that to, um, to, I believe, Aaron.
1: Was it Aaron? Okay, I couldn't remember. But yeah, she's like, you know, because that's really bad, and then that's a Ghostbusters saying, you know, Don't crossing cross the, the streams. streams, so it's, right. right, so it's gonna come back at the climax.
0: Well, the way the climax gets into motion is they corner Rowan in the basement of the Mercado, and they think they've got him, but then he kills himself in the machine. So they're just kind of like, oh, well, I guess he just killed himself. So obviously that's not really going to be how the movie ends. And, you know, it's a little twisted that the, the villain kills themselves to become a ghost. Then for whatever reason, they don't even really have a fight or maybe they do have a fight and I'm forgetting. But Aaron splits up from the group. Why does that happen? What is the story reason?
1: Because, yeah, she goes back home with the book and she's going through the book and that's when she finds all of Rowan's, like, crazy notes and, like, figures out what he's doing.
2: He's drawn in the book... Up to the point where he commits suicide exactly the way he did. And then right. he's turning the pages and he's grown large and starts destroying the city. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't help you there, Sebastian, as far why she's separated from the other three women. Because they
0: kind of make a big deal about it. And it seems like normally it would be a scene where like Aaron and Abby had a fight. And then Aaron leaves, but that's not how it is, right? They don't really have a fight at that point, do they? I mean,
1: they have so many fights throughout the film that I'm like, I can't recall if it happens at this time, too. It's
0: an awkward separation, is all I'm saying. They separate the characters, and I don't know why. The climax gets underway in full force. The ley lines open, and we get all these, like, old New York City ghosts. There's a, you know, big, tall, kind of Abe Lincoln-y looking ghost that's walking around. There's all these different kind of ghosts. We get stay puffed as a like parade balloon.
2: Yeah, they um, at one point the Thanksgiving parade materializes as ghosts and the stay puffed comes and falls on um Patty and and Abby and um, Holtzman, Kristen Wiig comes in and and is the one that saves them
1: with the um, Swiss Army knife, right? Because right. that was one of that we're handing out weapons. She was like, uh, Holtzman gives Aaron the Swiss Army knife, and she's like. What does this do? And she's like, it's a Swiss Army knife. Every woman in New York should have one or something like that. So that's how she ends up cutting. She pops, stay puffed that way. And
0: yeah, at this point we get Slimer. Slimer gets their hearse and is driving it around like a madman. And the hearse has this sort of bomb on the roof that's like basically a nuclear bomb or something. That's going to play into the very, very end. We also see that Slimer's got like a Slimer girlfriend in this car with him. While all of this is going on, uh, Kevin has been possessed by the villain and he's doing this dance on a building and everybody's sort of hypnotized or something by his dance. So we get kind of like a dance number. What's the song that's playing?
1: It's the Bee Gees. You should be dancing.
0: Should be dancing. Right. Silly dancing always gets people laughing. Mm-hmm. Um, and all the cops are there and they're all sort of, you know, hypnotized. So, you know, it's just the girls left to save the world. And there's a lot of running around. And it honestly... Gets a little bit kind of labored, <laughs> just lots of effects and lots of running around.
1: Steve, is this where you fell asleep?
2: Oh my god! Then you called it.
1: Yeah, because I the, I start to glaze over here, and so I I could see I would totally doze off to this.
2: So I fell asleep, and I missed the part where they where Rowan's like, you know, then you know when he leaves Kevin's body after they punch him in the um in the face and got the 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 spirit of Rowan to leave him, um, and then he's like oh, uh, what do you want me to be? And then he turns into their logo and then becomes giant, like, I completely missed it because I was asleep during this part of the movie. So I was just like, oh, <laughs> if you're if you're not going to call back to Stay Puffed, thank you for one. And then two, like, that's kind of brilliant to just come at them with their own logo. Yeah, I, I, I did enjoy that for the most part. Yeah, I like that too.
0: It's just so much of what's going on just becomes this sort of, visual noise I feel like there's just too many events going on in the climax and we don't have to catalog them all because I don't really don't want to please
1: don't make us right
0: ultimately (laughs) what it comes down to is there's a vortex and at one point they're going to cross the streams and that's gonna close the vortex but it doesn't work and then uh Holtzman points out that they if they blow up the bomb on the hearse that'll close the vortex so the hearse falls into the vortex, they like use their streams to guide the hearse into the vortex. It goes in, but Abby gets yanked in when the logo ghost, uh, AKA uh, the villain, grabs Abby as he's being sucked in. And so she gets sucked into the vortex and they put a rope on Aaron or whatever, and Aaron jumps in after Abby and saves her from falling into the ghost world or whatever
2: yeah and this is the the callback to when um she left her from when they were kids and became like a you know yeah academic she's like you know i'm not gonna leave you again the end of chiang chi does that as well but it was a common thing but like it's uh you know it's a culminator relationship which i don't really think was necessarily drilled in me enough for me to feel that to its full extent, but, like, I get it. I feel like there's a little
0: bit of vortex fatigue at this point in 2016, too. we had seen a lot of superhero movies, including The Avengers, where, you know, a character gets sucked into this vortex at the last second, and then they come out or whatever, you know... And there was all the superhero movies with, like, blue vortexes going up into right, the clouds. The blue clouds, beam like, into the
2: sky, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like
0: which happened, like, a million times. So I think by, like, 2016, this felt really kind of a little bit played out. But it was green. It was green. Yeah, it was green.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> it feels like, and it, and it all ties into just sort of, like, an overindulgence of CGI and everything. Like, it's just kind of too much like i feel like we reached the crux of this sort of thing where it's all going to come down to a vortex and there's going to be a million cgi things flying around and they're going to have to do all these video game things to close the thing and it's just kind of like i feel like we've come to a place now where we're kind of easing off that a little bit like the marvel movies are still kind of doing them a little bit too much but i think now we're seeing more sort of big budget movies being like, you know, we can have an ending where it's not like the whole world's getting sucked up into a vortex in the sky. We can actually just kind of like have it be a cataclysm for the characters and not so much the world, you know? Yes, It felt like this was the pinnacle of that. And I feel like this was the moment where everybody was just kind of like, can we please not do this anymore? I know I was. It's not like it's a terrible climax. It's just there's too much going on. They could have taken out like half the stuff here and it would have been just as effective. If you just really had focused it on Aaron and Abby and their relationship and just made that really the emotional crux of the end. I think you could have had lots of bells and whistles going on at the same time, but without it feeling like it loses you and puts you to sleep.
1: It does, it's the same as I've mentioned before, if you've listened to the podcast about my battle fatigue, it's the same type thing. It's just, it's way too much going on for too long and yeah, what I really care about is Aaron and Abby. That's the most important thing. It's like, I, I feel like, and, and I do feel like this film does a pretty good job of, t- it's about their the women's friendships, you know, and, and being there for each other and showing up and not abandoning, like, you know, had happened before. So that's what matters, at least in my book. I mean, yeah, I want to see some crazy ghost shit happening too, but like this goes on for just too long for me.
2: I totally agree with you, but Even still, if a fight's done well, if it's like well choreographed, I completely love it, even if it goes on for a little too long. But yeah, I agree that uh, if it was more, it's more about the character relationships, which is why the, the relationship with the villain isn't strong enough to make him even matter at all. Right. So it really just comes down to Aaron and Abby. And for me, that wasn't pushed enough like you get a little bit of it in the beginning, but in the middle, it's not really there at all. It's sort of like, okay, stop fawning over Kevin. Disagreeing about how to hire a receptionist is like, that's not enough for me. All right. Well,
0: that pretty much wraps up the movie. The Ghostbusters get their sweet firehouse HQ. They're moved out of the Chinese restaurant. And then we get about a zillion end scenes, way too many end scenes. But we do get a end scene where uh, Patty's listening to a tape and hears Zool, so they're sort of hinting that if they got to make a sequel, Zool would be the villain. But they didn't get to make a sequel.
2: When they go in initially, in the, earlier in the movie, when they're looking for places to work and they go in, the real estate agent's like, yeah, it's 21000 a month. And she's like, and then a customer's like, get the fuck out of here. You know, it's like, <laughs> that's like super expensive. And then they end up in the Chinese restaurant, which I thought was a nice choice because, yes, Manhattan real estate is crazy, especially for a firehouse of that size. Would it be $20,000 a month, you think? I think it'd be more. Really? Wow. Yeah. That
0: is a lot.
1: I think the gal who's playing the real estate agent is one of the writers. Ah,
2: interesting. Yes, she is. She is. I'm just looking at the INDB right now.
1: And then, yeah, the reason that they get to have the firehouse is because, um, again, the mayor is like, hey, thank you for saving the city. You know, we still can't really acknowledge <laughs> What, what happened but please make it so it doesn't happen again we'll fund we'll give you whatever you need you know i mean that comes through his assistant and then they're like whatever and they're like whatever you know. Well, you name it and so that's how they, they get the sweet firehouse
0: this movie cost 144 million dollars and only made 46 million dollars opening weekend interestingly the new ghostbusters Open to $44 million opening weekend, but the narrative around that is that it's a huge success, A, because of the pandemic, and B, because the new Ghostbusters movie only cost $75 million. So it cost way less. And even though it made $2 million less than this movie, the narrative for that is that it's a huge success, while the narrative for this was that it was a huge bomb. It ended up making 120 million in North America and 229 worldwide, but it needed 300 million to break even. So, 70 million dollar
2: loss. That's pretty bad. That is bad. Boots on the ground. I just saw Ghostbusters Afterlife on opening day or nights in the IMAX screen, the the best theater in north america as far as i'm concerned a screen size wise and it was shockingly empty i was really surprised
0: well let me ask you guys this uh why do you think it failed
1: i think it failed just i think people were not like that are super um into the franchise and that are nostalgic for what it was were just not happy with these four women hopping into the Ghostbuster roles. I, I mean, no matter who they were. And I don't know, I mean, like I said, I, I don't know who else you, you could have gotten, in my opinion, to do a better job as far as the cast when I think they're great. And I'm not even going in like a misogynistic you know, viewpoint. I'm just saying like, if I was somebody who was just like, I love the Ghostbusters and this is who they've been all this time that I've been spending with them, I think if I had like serious love and this was my franchise, I would be right there too. I'd have a hard time with having now there's four girls doing it. You would think that people like we kind of had discussed earlier would be happy just to be getting more Ghostbusters. It didn't work for the super nostalgic folks. And it probably didn't work for people coming in at the first time.
2: I think it's one of those things where people were wait and see on it. And so when the small amount of people that went and they're like, Uh, And those were the people that might have been super Ghostbusters fans. They were telling people, oh, don't bother. Like, I love all the actors in it. And if you had taken all of these actors, the the four main ones, and, you know, plus Chris Hemsworth and put them in some other supernatural comedy, I think we would have been all there for it. Yeah, I think people wanted the old stuff. And when you do the switch around on them, they're like, what did you do with my thing? You changed it and they didn't like it. I think
0: you're hitting on pretty much exactly why it failed, and it's because it didn't give people what they wanted. It promised Ghostbusters, and what people wanted from Ghostbusters was to see the original Ghostbusters. If you're gonna do that, if you're going to set people's expectations up, like, okay, we're gonna do Ghostbusters, but we're gonna give you new Ghostbusters, you need to deliver something great in order to like do a proper reboot where people are really like fully on board. Like, okay, I'm on board for this. You got to knock it out of the park. People are sort of down on the star Wars sequels now, but like when force awakens hit that felt like doing it right. Cause they introduced a new bunch of characters and they had the old characters in there to sort of hand off the torch They didn't do it perfect, but they did it really well. And this needed to be like
2: a that level type of thing. Ghostbusters Afterlife is the Force Awakens to Ghostbusters. And if you see it, you'll probably totally see what I'm saying. I would tell anyone that's a fan of um, Ghostbusters... To go see it
0: i'm not a Ghostbusters fan but i've heard from all the people who are that they seem to really like it so sounds like they got it pretty close to being right this time
1: I don't think we'll see afterlife in the theater but we'll definitely watch it at home i mean sure. yeah. you know it's just not especially you know just because of the pandemic and stuff we've been a little you know we might have seen this back in the day when we went to see everything in the theater pretty much but you know we've just gotten a little more selective with what we go see but I look forward to seeing it at home, and for the record, I was looking forward to re-watching Ghostbusters 2016. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we, I think we saw it in the theater, and I think we kind of watched it once at home after that. It was fun to revisit it. I mean, it's not perfect, but there are definitely, I mean, I was laughing out loud throughout yeah. the film. There are some really funny moments.
0: It's definitely not a terrible movie.
1: No, it's not at all, but I understand why it didn't succeed in the sense that if you're a super ghostbusters fan there are things that are just not going to work for you if you're not like you could just look at it as a funny ghost comedy and and i agree with what steve said like it would have been better received had they taken the the four girl ghostbusters and chris hemsworth and done their own thing separate from this franchise i think I think you're absolutely right, Steve. I think people would have been way more here for it.
0: I think people would have been more there for it too if they had done legit Ghostbusters character cameos in the movie yeah. instead of these fake, not really the characters cameos. Like if Bill Murray came in as Peter Venkman and was like, hey, you're cool, Aaron. Right. You're cool, Abby. Like people would have been like, well, Peter Venkman likes them, then I'm going to like them too. Like, yeah. It was such a weird... Bad choice to have cameos, but not have them be the characters. And I'm sure it's because Bill Murray didn't want to be Peter Venkman. I mean, I'm sure if Paul Feig had been allowed to have Peter Venkman in the movie, he would have happily had Peter Venkman in the movie. I think it was probably Bill Murray, not to cast aspersions on Bill Murray because I love him. But he's been the stickler in the Ghostbusters franchise for a long time. He doesn't want to be involved or whatever. Like, I don't know what they did to get him in the new movie, but they figured it out. Or or I guess he just liked the script. I don't know. But yeah, I think that was just a bad move
1: it was no you're right they needed to have somebody from the like something someone somehow from the original team or whatever kind of blessing the new round people. they needed to like like you said oh you're cool come on and then everybody can be like okay well they think they're cool like it's cool you know is the
2: old cast the right age to be the parents of this 2016 cast and i would say yes sure they could conceivably be the daughters or the nieces of the original Ghostbusters and they're just like, inherited it. Because somebody's
0: uncle or whatever, it doesn't matter. They don't all have to be connected by family. Just right. like oh, maybe Venkman is Aaron's uncle and that's how, or or no, Abby's related to one of them and that's where she gets the idea or right. Holtzman's related to one. Just somebody, there's a connection.
2: Right, Yeah. right. And then they, they do that. I mean, it's not a spoiler because it's in the it's in the freaking trailer. But in Afterlife, the main character is the granddaughter of one of the Ghostbusters. So, you know. That's how you do it.
1: Well, and they did. I mean, they made Ernie Hudson Leslie Jones's uncle, but right. he's not his character. He's, no. you know, he's running a mortuary. So it's not, you know, that doesn't doesn't do anything.
2: I love that, too. It's like, oh, my God, it's Ecto-1. But then it's, uh, it's like the horrors. And it's like it's this off-brand Ghostbusters. And it's like. It's Ghostbusters, but it's it's a Chinese restaurant instead of a firehouse. And it's like, everything is like, it's like, ah, not quite when everyone just wanted the, the OG. They
1: were getting the great value Ghostbusters. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but like, not even like, you know,
2: um, there's been some good ghost hunting comedies on TV and in the movies. It's a formula that people definitely enjoy. But when you call something Ghostbusters... There's an expectation, yeah, Yeah. and this was not it. But yeah, I mean, not as bad as people saying. And if you wanted to enjoy the multiverse, which is such a thing now, you know, for better or worse, (laughs) yeah, okay, riff on it. Do um, anthology kind of Ghostbusters where it's just like all over the place. Sure, why not?
0: Well, I'm going to go uh, strap on my proton pack and blast a demon ghost at an Aussie concert and get slime in all of my crevices. <laughs> <laughs>
1: crevices.
0: That about does it today for Pole Trauma. If you like what you heard, check out our social media presence on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just look for Tentpole Trauma. That was easy, wasn't it? If you like us, hit subscribe and leave us a sterling review on iTunes, if you dare. If you really like us, head over to Patreon.com and get involved in one of our fabulous tiers. You'll be glad you did. Want to communicate with Tentpole Trauma? Send an email to tentpoltrauma at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and who knows, one day you may even get your email read on one of our shows. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll see you real soon.